0: In Armstrong, last night, the Supreme Court uh, did not block a pro-life uh, law in Texas. And so I guess if you wouldn't mind, just with your legal background, explain exactly what this law is, and do you think the Supreme Court uh, got it right?
1: Well, uh, so I haven't delved into the entire Texas law yet, but what I think what's important is everybody's moving on, and, and as somebody who's pro-life, and really appreciates this. All they did was not grant an emergency appeal to stay this law. They even acknowledged in the decision that this thing is far from um, done, and it, it, that Texas law will continue to get litigated. The only difference is, is, it remains in effect while it's getting litigated, as opposed to being uh, banned from implementation while it's being litigated. But listen, uh, they're going to they're going to the, this fall, the Supreme Court's going to hear a case from Mississippi. Obviously, that Texas law is going to continue to move forward, and this is always the problem when you have judge-made law, which Roe v. Wade is, is courts change, feelings change, technology and science change. So as somebody who, uh, my mother was a Catholic kindergarten teacher, I've been pro-life long before I've ever been involved in politics. It's, it's, a, it's an exciting time for the pro-life movement right now.
0: So let me ask you this, because my understanding of this law is that once cardiac activity is detected, then you can no longer get an abortion in the state of Texas. And now they've made it so that a Texas citizen can essentially sue an abortion clinic or anyone that abets an abortion, meaning if, if that person were to drive someone to a clinic, they also could be sued for $10,000. Just the constitutionality of, of something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, depending if you read the uh, uh, majority or the dissents, it's either novel or whatever. It's it, it's it's unique. But yeah, that I mean, you can't sue the patient. But you could sue anybody, like you said, who drove them there or who helped participate in them. But it's it's not the state of Texas doing it. It would be another private citizen, and it's it's. It's definitely novel. Um, I tend—I I mean, I've—I've I've been a part of these legislative issues in North Dakota. I tend—I I mean, I tend to be overly simplistic. Maybe it's my old uh, criminal defense criminal defense background, but I prefer states had the right to determine whether abortions were legal or not, and they'd enforce it. But uh, like I said, this case is going to continue to be litigated. It's going to—it's going to go through all the appeals process. Uh, but I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Roe v. Wade, a lot of it. Is based on the viability, and, and we know a lot more um, about uh, the health of unborn babies now, and and those types of things. The science has changed, and our knowledge of the science is um, is absolutely changed. So to act like we can't revisit some of these judge made laws, I think is just not accurate. And I'm glad we're doing it.
0: So news came out uh, just before we had this interview that House Majority Leader of North Dakota and the House, and the Senate Majority Leader both said, "Hey, yeah, uh, a similar law could definitely come forth." in the January or the next session coming up in 20, I think 23, that sounds like so far away, but in 2023, would you support, uh, would you support that kind of movement?
1: i would for sure support the one more similar to mississippi and actually voted for things things laws like that that's the one that's going to be heard by the supreme court this fall um and uh, we you know the uh the abortion bans i have to listen this is really unique anything that's protecting pro-life i'm pretty excited about and i'm also excited about states having the ability to do that. And not, court, and not federal courts or federal legislation. But uh, yeah, I mean, it just essentially is, if we can do more to protect pro- pro-life movement, I'm always gonna support it.
0: Um, the more North Dakota-centric is the fact that it was uh, announced today that Otter Tail Power is gonna sell their shares in the Coyote Station out in Beulah. You're on the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House. Just your assessment on what does that mean exactly for that Coyote Station, the Beulah community?
1: Well, they're they're not the whole owner. So and it's going to transition out to 2028. And so it's uh, I mean, there's the sky is definitely not falling. But we continue to move away from reliable, affordable energy and those types of issues. And sometimes we're pulled in different directions. I think one interesting thing, which is something I've raised a lot, maybe it's because of my background in natural gas. You know, we talk a lot about tax incentives and things that make renewables uh, um, Significantly have significant advantages in the marketplace. But one of the things I don't think we spend enough time talking about with coal for as cheap and reliable and stable and perfect for providing energy when you need it the most coal is, when you allow renewables to have primacy on our electric grid, coal has a tremendous disadvantage because it takes a day and a half to start and stop a coal mine. And whereas with natural gas, you can get it going and you can you can ramp it up and ramp it down so much quicker. And a lot of that is based solely because we grant primacy to renewables on the grid. And listen, we have to go back and look at this. We believe in all, all of the above in North Dakota. The problem is too many of my colleagues think all of the above means only solar and wind. And I'm just telling you that is a dangerous place to be when it's 20 below for a month.
0: Got 60 seconds, sir. Will you vote yes or no on the billion dollar infrastructure bill?
1: Uh, so I don't view I don't view the 1.2 infrastructure bill and the 3.5 soft infrastructure bill because know in, uh, in Speaker Pelosi's house the best chance I'm going to get is a 1.2 trillion dollar bill with a 3.5 trillion dollar chaser and in that scenario I'm absolutely vote no on both of them.
0: I like how you just broke that down for us, Congressman Armstrong. Thank you very much. Always great to see you, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get to Congressman Kelly Armstrong joining us now via Skype. Congressman Armstrong, always great to see you. Let's start with the obvious thing that's taken all the oxygen out of the room. That's the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, Earlier this week, President Joe Biden addressed the nation and called it an extremely successful mission. What's your assessment on this withdrawal from Afghanistan?
1: Well, uh, I I don't think I would qualify it as that. I mean, the airlift was obviously fantastic and it was large, but it's a little bit like uh, being in a being down by 13 runs at a baseball game and coming back and winning by one run or tying it up. Uh, you don't get to create the chaos and havoc you had. And I think we know something a little bit about a phone call that has gone on. And we need to, obviously, I'm really disappointed that Speaker Pelosi blocked my colleague's uh, attempt to, uh, <laughs> one, I think we should be back in Congress dealing with this right now, and two, getting accountability and making sure we know who's left there, Americans, people who helped us over the last 20 years. And I think that's really it's really unfortunate that uh, that was the
0: tone and tenor the president took. Boy, you put so much in that answer that I <laughs> to address, I guess starters, let me ask you this, since you brought up the baseball analogy, did the United States win or lose the Afghanistan war?
1: Well, uh, I think the Taliban is in charge of Afghanistan right now, and I don't think anybody would, in no sense of victory that I would say would I say that is correct. And listen, uh, I'm not a fan of forever wars. Uh, President Trump wanted to get out of Afghanistan as well. Uh, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. But there are also a lot of reasons to make sure that what happened, I mean, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I don't think anybody can honestly, who's been paying attention, unless you've lived under a rock, under another rock, under another rock, if this went well over the last two weeks.
0: Again, yeah, unless you're living in one of the caves in Afghanistan, I don't know how you could make that assessment. So we'll get to some of that more in a moment, I'm going to address your first answer as well. When you talked about this phone call between President uh, uh, biden and former president afghanistan ghani one of the things that was discussed there president ghani was saying hey look we just need some more air force if you guys can sort of frontload that i think we've got a chance to keep peace here and to keep you know this government in power and yet they shut down bagram air base they basically eliminated any sort of air like, the thing i couldn't comprehend congressman I and mean, you can help me understand this is as the taliban was going in and taking over provinces and then heading to Kabul, why not use the air force to sort of as i would say brush them back you know do some spraying like hey stay and we didn't do that. Like, why would President Biden and the people of the Pentagon not abide by what Boots on the Ground and the President of Afghanistan, at least, were requesting?
1: Well, and I think that's important to recognize. This is a State Department mission. This wasn't a mili- i mean, military mission, right? I mean, we gave up Bagram Air Force Base because there was an arbitrary number of the withdrawal of troops, um, and the reason we gave it up is we couldn't present, we couldn't protect both the embassy and the air and the air base. And do I wish, m- probably. Wait, wait,
0: so- but, but can we, I, I haven't heard that, sir. So, so yeah. we're the—we spend a lot of money in military. We are, as far as I know, the strongest military on the planet. And you're telling me we couldn't defend both the embassy and the air base?
1: you couldn't with the number of troops State Department determined that we were going to leave in, in, in country. That's And that's why we want to, We were, I mean, we've already asked for preserving documentation, want to talk to some of our military generals. There was a State Department drawdown of numbers required by the administration, and with that number of drawdown, the reason we gave up Bagram Air Force Base is because they couldn't do both with that number. I, I think if we get a, I would like to get some of our military leaders in a moment of candor and find out where they're at on a lot of these things, because I think we will find that the uh, recommendations they were giving state probably weren't being followed.
0: So where do you think this leads to? Because it's hard for me to understand why do we have to stick to the date of 831? Why not make that a more fluid day? Why are we putting the Taliban on the front lines as far as frisking people that are heading to leave the Kabul airport? Like uh, some of these decisions, I just can't even fathom that somebody that's, that's got this sort of military intelligence and experience are making. So Who should be held accountable? Should people be resigning? Should Joe Biden be impeached? Where are you at with this?
1: Well, I, I mean, I'm in, we need an investigation and find out where and when all these decisions were made. I mean, there's a reason our ranking members have asked for documents. I think the most important thing right now is to ensure and continue to keep putting as much pressure as humanly possible on the administration to get our American citizens out of Afghanistan and get those of uh, Afghanis that helped us for the last 20 years in the war on terror out of Afghanistan. I think the long-term, I mean, there, there's a lot of long-term things from our allies and um, uh, uh, the loss of faith in us. I mean, we've seen In the british parliament we've seen it from statements from um germany and all of those things but i my number one long-term concern is we need intelligence we need to understand this is the breeding ground of terrorism we know how this goes we know that they wish ill will on america and its citizens and i have a hard time figuring out how we're going to continue to gather intelligence moving forward when nobody in the region will ever trust us again
0: with that being said should joe biden be impeached
1: I don't think he should be impeached yet, but I haven't. Seen, I mean, we haven't been into it. I spent two years talking about why a phone call isn't worthy of impeachment. What I mean, do I think he's he, absolute failure in leadership? Do I think he is absolutely positive? Or, I mean, this has proven that he is incapable of leading a country. Yes, but that's what elections are for, and moving forward. But it's also what investigations are for.
0: So we'll see what comes through of those. So then, who should be held accountable?
1: Well, I mean, everybody should be held accountable, but there's okay. a long way between holding somebody accountable, Chris, and I, I, my concern is we are now weaponizing these types of things forever. I mean, if there is a high crime or misdemeanor committed, then yes, I mean, impeachment proceedings should start, but we're a long way from being incompetent to moving towards those things. So you take- um, We're going to do investigations. I mean, and there's bipartisan calls for it in the Senate right now. Obviously, we need to win the House back in 2022 before we can actively engage in that. But we're going to make sure and find out exactly what happened, who made these strategic failures in decision making, and they need to be held accountable.
0: One of those other failures is the fact that we left $85 billion of military equipment behind. Yesterday, a chance to visit with Senator Hope, and he said, Chris, essentially, we've now turn the Taliban into arms dealers. There's a great piece in the New York Times. I think today, in regards to the Taliban needs cash in order to run Afghanistan effectively, you're gonna see some really even worse things happen within that country. And so, I just want your assessment on the fact, I mean, again, leaving that kind of military equipment there for the Taliban, you know, China and Russia are gonna come in and reverse engineer it. They're gonna go sell it. How did that decision happen?
1: Well, and I think that's what I'm more interested in the phone call and how that was going. I, and not so so much for the, you know the immediate um, political hit on it. But if we were aware of this as early as that was going on and we weren't making any any real constant decisions to destroy the equipment before we left it or bring it with us, that is absolutely unacceptable to me. Because if if, if we, I mean, again, if from what uh, reporting, if we know that the president and the State Department were aware of how dicey that situation is, it just doesn't seem to make any sense that you just leave the stuff packed up, like they're just sitting there for people to take. And I think that's important. One of our biggest leverages we have on that. On the Taliban government is by cutting off their funds. Well, every M-16 they have or every Humvee they have that they don't have to buy on or they can sell to somebody else is a way for them to circumvent the one piece of leverage we have left. So it's a terrible strategic decision. It sounds like they had some advance warning and still were incapable of making that happen. And we absolutely need to know the answers to that.
0: I want to get your take on this. Uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff General Milley said at the press conference yesterday that 20,000 Afghans have now been Brought to the United States at eight different military bases, your do you concur with 20,000 Afghans coming here, coming to military bases, and where are they going to go?
1: Well, I'm a little concerned. On obviously, we know how chaotic it was leaving Afghanistan, and obviously, we know once they get here, they get parolee one or parolee two status, and those are the things we know. What we're trying to get to the bottom of is when they go to what we call a lily pad, whether it's in. Um, Dallas or wherever else in the world, what biometrics are being done? What screening is being done? So we're trying to get the answers to as many of those questions. And I wanna be clear, anybody and anybody's family who, I mean, I have friends of mine, we've been working hard to help get people out of Afghanistan that were in hundreds of gunfights with our U.S. soldiers, uh, people who have prosecuted the Taliban, all of those types of issues i welcome any of them with open arms they have absolutely fought side by side by side with our military personnel for 20 years and while i never served over there i have plenty of colleagues and friends across the country that tell me how brave they were and uh, and basically how dead they'd be if they stayed in afghanistan but i i mean the, the we need to know exactly what the vetting process is
0: do you have any idea what that is sir because right now what i'm hearing is a lot of these people they show up and there's there's no background on these people that are right now in the united states um,
1: and we know that when they were coming out, and we know that, that once they get here, once they get granted pro, I mean, there's a lot of carrots to keep them where they're at, but there's really no sticks once you get pro-lee 1 and pro-lee status. So we are, my office is reaching out, and we are trying to get every single bit of information we can get about what, what the middle place is, and that's where they go onto the lily pads and trying to figure out exactly how we know all of that.
0: So let's say that you find out, hey, somebody shouldn't, they go through the vetting process, and we realize, whoa, this person shouldn't be here, then what?
1: Well, I mean that's where we have to I mean they they have a legal uncertainty but w- let's wait and find out where we're at what we know first.
0: Okay. Do you know Sir, if any I-
1: I'm concerned that I don't know it yet. I mean, I will be clear about that, but we're trying to get into it because it's really that central. I mean, the vetting has to be occurring at that central place because we know it's not particularly happening on the front end or the back end. And that is concerning.
0: So I mentioned they're going to military bases. We obviously have some of those here in North Dakota. There was a uh, one of your colleagues in Wisconsin that was surprised to find out that busloads of Afghans were being shipped into Wisconsin. Do you have any news, any insight for us, sir, in regards to Afghans that are uh, being placed in North Dakota?
1: Not to the military bases. I mean, I'm assuming when we do the actual refugee resettlement, we will get um, some of those in North Dakota. And like I said, any of those that have, I mean, that are properly vetted and served served next to our military force, I hope North Dakotans welcome them with open arms.
0: Got it. Uh, Congressman Hilly Armstrong is going to be kind enough to stick around for the next segment as well. Big decision with the Supreme Court last in regards to not blocking a Texas pro-life bill. So we're going to talk about that. And could that potentially be adopted here? in the great state of North Dakota.